It was a Saturday morning in the summer of 1979. I was six years old, helping my father in our long suburban garden. Those days when semi-Ds were built on ribbons of land rather than postage stamps. We were in the flower bed beside our new DIY pergola that had been painted green and now supported a young climbing rose finding its way. I can't remember if we were planting or digging or just straightening the edges. My dad loved a straight edge. There wasn't much chat, just the lovely quiet of a sunny weekend morning. My dad home from work as an advertising copywriter. There were no Instagram influencers in 1979. No vloggers, no bloggers, no TikTok, no clicking, no following, no liking. If you wanted someone to buy your product, you hired an advertising agency. And they gave a copywriter and a graphic designer the job of dreaming up ads for TV and radio, press and outdoor. That was it. The creative team were at the pinnacle of the advertising industry. It was exciting, prestigious, and there was no room for those they wryly referred to as gifted amateurs. All of a sudden, Dad handed me the spade and pulled off his gardening gloves. You stay here. I'll be back in a minute, he said, before sprinting down the lawn and disappearing inside the back door. He returned in less than a minute. Sorry, I just had to write something down, he said taking back the spade and resuming his work. I wondered what it was exactly that had required a paper and pen so urgently, but stayed quiet. Even at that young age, I knew when a daisy chain of words was forming in his head. We had to wait until the circle was complete. It was the same feeling as watching someone solve a Rubik's Cube with the clock ticking. You didn't know how they were doing it, but you knew when it was done and it was enormously satisfying for everyone involved. Finding the right words and arranging them in just the right way was my dad's gift, the essence of his job and it kept a roof over our heads. He instilled an appreciation of language in all of us from an early age. He painted a blackboard on the garage wall and would write a list of jumbled up words for us to untangle while he ate his dinner. He would delight in spotting a typo in a shop window or an unfortunate translation while on holidays. Words were everything to him, which is why he used them so sparingly. This is not the paradox, it seems. It's almost as if they were a precious raw material with an intrinsic value. And when combined with just the right visuals, the result was alchemy. In later years, when Dad was winning awards, He would return from advertising festivals with showreels of the best ads from around the world. Funny, poignant, effective, and all in 30 seconds. They were works of art, especially when compared to the language landfill of present-day online marketing. But back in that summer of 1979, I had to wait a few more weeks to see what had caused my dad to run the length of the garden. It was revealed as a campaign for Bord Nguelga, with the aim of encouraging people to use the Coupla Fuckel. This was not as exciting as the Cadbury's Roses campaign, for obvious reasons. But I still remember being proud to see the ads my dad had made. One of the press ads featured a photo of a New York cabbie leaning out the window of his yellow taxi with a smile and a thumbs up. 
the ad read, Around the world, different people have their own way of expressing gratitude. Some with words, others with gestures, others again with both. Dankeschön. Thanks a million. Merci. Grazie. In Ireland, it's a phrase, Gurav Mahagut, that good may be with you. Not just The ad finished with a slogan that was repeated throughout the campaign and won many accolades in the advertising world. A simple idea expressed with simple words that managed to say everything that needed to be said. Over 40 years later, it remains a guiding sentiment for those, like my father, who believe in choosing their words carefully. Our language. It's part of what we are. On a recent stay near Linan on Killary Harbour, I was taken aback to read in a guidebook that pleasant trips can be made by boat to the islands at the mouth of the inlet where any amount of puffin shooting can be obtained. The tourist will also have the opportunity to shoot a seal or two as they frequently rise within 50 yards of the boat. It requires a quick shot and a good aim to kill and capture one for unless they are hit in the head, they are seldom landed. You'll be relieved to hear that these bloodthirsty suggestions aren't intended for the modern tourist. The guidebook, Connemara and the Western Highlands, belonged to a grand-aunt of mine and was published in 1900. To be fair, it also draws the visitor's attention to the purely scenic attractions of the area. So great is the beauty of the scenery, it says that we seem to be gazing on an artist's ideal panorama rather than upon nature. It maintains, however, that even though Killary is a drowned valley gouged out by glacial ice, it can't be compared to a Norwegian fjord whose steep sides are typically covered in pines, whereas Killary is surrounded by treeless mountains. Despite this, and even though it's still called Killary Harbour on the Ordnance Survey map I bought in Linan, it's now being referred to as Killary Fjord in tourist literature and on Wild Atlantic Way signposts. Which is perhaps how it should be, not least because Killary's function as a harbour is not much in evidence these days. But around the time my grand-aunt's guidebook was published, the Royal Navy was drawing up plans to make the nine-mile-long inlet into a permanent base for the North Atlantic Fleet. In 1892, as a test, an armada of battleships, cruisers and torpedo boats, on manoeuvres off the west coast, steamed into Killary and laid anchor. This exercise was repeated in 1899, and a subsequent report pronounced it an ideal place to shelter a large fleet of modern warships. Then, in 1903, 120 years ago, the fleet returned, this time accompanying the Royal Yacht. On board the yacht, actually a steamship, were King Edward VII and his wife Queen Alexandra, who were paying a visit to Connemara and Galway City as part of a tour of Ireland. The couple disembarked at a small pier, which I discovered by chance was right beside the cottage where I was staying on my own visit. A motorcade awaited them there 
and they did some sightseeing before continuing on to Galway by train. Edward had been in Ireland several times before. In 1861, the then 19-year-old Prince of Wales spent 10 weeks of his army training at the Curra camp. While there, he had a brief liaison with an Irish actress called Nellie Clifton. Word of this reached his parents, Victoria and Albert, and when the prince arrived home, his father, who was very ill at the time, got up from his sickbed to give Edward a piece of his mind. Albert died shortly afterwards, and Victoria never forgave Edward for having upset him. A few years later, Edward was back in County Kildare, this time to attend Punchestown races. Once again, Victoria disapproved, writing to him that it strengthens the belief, already too prevalent, that your chief object is amusement. It seems that being a monarch with a wayward son is a royal family tradition. Like his ancestor Edward, King Charles III visited Ireland several times while he was Prince of Wales. And by coincidence, on his first visit in 1995, he stayed in the Killary Harbour area, fly fishing and landscape painting at nearby Delphi Lodge. Security was a major consideration, of course, and the lodge's setting in a narrow valley that could easily be sealed off made it a perfect location. Sealed-off seclusion was also on the minds of those who were touting Killary Harbour as a naval base in King Edward's day. But with the advance of submarine technology coming up to the First World War, it became evident that even a single German U-boat would be able to wreak havoc among a fleet sequestered in a narrow inlet with escape to the open sea only possible one vessel at a time. And so the project was abandoned. Today, the largest vessel regularly anchored in Killary is the Connemara Lady, an all-weather catamaran that takes tourists on a cruise to the mouth of the fjord. Passengers are able to take in the magnificent views while listening to an interesting account of Killary's history and geology. And thankfully, shooting at puffins or seals is not encouraged. James Joyce famously wrote, In the particular is contained the universal. I understand this to mean that a small, intimate detail of an individual's life can echo a larger truth which applies to all humanity. This struck me recently when a reference to the Cold War, that global, decades-long geopolitical standoff, brought to mind the struggle my wife and I have over Tupperware. She loves it. I dread it. The United States, of course, championed free market capitalism over Soviet state socialism, and this opposition was often expressed as a question of how many nuclear warheads does the average superpower need. Our divergence is due to a fundamental schism over how many plastic tubs can the average household contain. In essence, all of these antagonists, the West, the Warsaw Pact, me, my wife, each believe theirs to be the true path to peace, and the two separate conflicts have many shared characteristics. There are long periods of apparent stalemate when contentious areas are avoided by tacit agreement. These are punctuated by moments of sudden tension when the fine balance is upset. Passions flare, 
Long suppressed grievances are given fresh voice. Conflict erupts. Then high diplomacy is required to avert naked hostility. At heart, my wife and I have deeply held but irreconcilable ideological differences and I fear for the future. Is this going to be a lifetime contention? Is the only way out to be in a box, ideally not plastic? Broadly speaking, my wife is the epitome of moderation. She is not needlessly acquisitive. She is not high maintenance. She believes sufficiency is wealth. But talk of Tupperware, and her eyes glint with the avarice of a pirate captain contemplating a buried hoard of gold. Our designated cupboard is full to bursting. I approach it with trepidation. Sometimes I escape unscathed, clutching the box and lid I want with a relieved grin and a racing heart. Other times I'm ambushed by an avalanche and have to clear up the consequent clutter. I try to do this carefully and conscientiously, but often, when tired of the weary repetition, I chuck things back in and whip the door shut before the cascade gains force. This respite is brief. Anxiety reasserts itself due to the perpetual threat of proliferation. We inevitably acquire more containers. My wife believes that single-use plastic is the devil, so any purchased tubs of soup, pasta sauce or ice cream are washed and added to the stockpile. I do my best to keep things at an acceptable limit. When she's out, I quietly sneak a few odd assortments into the recycling bin. She, in turn, surreptitiously replaces these with occasional adopted pieces. She thinks I don't notice, but I'm on to her. I'm also entirely aware of another stash she has salted away. In the deep recesses of the cupboard under the stairs lurks a pile of large containers, including cartons from now-defunct companies. These should have been decommissioned long ago, but they're still part of the arsenal. I rarely venture under there, so I don't feel it's enough of an incursion to undermine peaceful coexistence, although I have made disapproving remarks while simultaneously announcing my intention to radically purge the main cupboard. This sabre-rattling is merely posturing and mainly tactical. Under cover of this distracting bluster, I can mount a lesser but still satisfying cull. A prevailing state of detente can be easily destabilised and half-price curry night is always a challenge. The influx of new plastic food cartons is bad enough, but worse. The restaurant often changes suppliers, which means many similar, but not identical, lids and containers. This drives me demented. I suspect American nuclear weapon engineers face the same hazards when the Pentagon changes defence contractors. My wife is blithely indifferent to even amused by my outrage, which, if I'm honest, is sometimes feigned except for the time we had our own Cuban Missile Crisis. Innocently rooting in the boot of our car, I found, hidden under a pile of shopping bags, a whole set of new, shrink-wrapped, top-of-the-range plastic boxes with fetching green lids. I do, after all, see her viewpoint. Full escalation was only averted when she persuaded me that they were for a friend. The question is, can I believe her? I suppose I could count them all but that way lies paranoid madness. I must strive to remain calm and patient. We need to trust each other. In 2011, the late Queen Elizabeth paid a state visit to Ireland. I had suffered a bereavement which laid me so low that getting out of bed was an achievement.
Someone advised that, in order to survive, I should stay busy and refuse no invitation, no matter how strange. As a writer, raising a family on just a tin sliver of my imagination, this seemed wise psychological and financial advice. Flann O'Brien said that a mark of a good university education was being able to knock out a break of 25 in snooker, no matter how bad the table. I never attended university, but thought that the mark of a good writer was being able to knock out a thousand words, no matter how obscure the subject. In 2011, this adage was put to the test. I was offered two gigs that would happen simultaneously. Poetry Ireland asked me to do a poetry reading tour and the Herald asked me to write a set of commentary pieces about the Queen's visit, each article to be delivered before 1am from various hotel bedrooms to meet the print deadline. So, as the Queen commenced her tour of Ireland as a foreign dignitary, I commenced my different tour as a nomadic poet and temporary royal correspondent. While other reporters would follow her every step and utterance, my task was to look ahead in an offbeat and hopefully humorous fashion at her next day's engagements so that I could explore her visit at the same peculiar angle that the Greek poet Kafafi urged poets to explore the universe. I'd never paid much attention to the English royals beyond knowing random facts like, for example, that the Queen's grandfather was regarded as the family's intellectual for displaying an interest in stamp collecting. But I didn't know how the Irish public would react to the Queen. This framed the first question my editor asked me to address. How would elderly street traders on Moore Street view her? The answer seemed simple. The Queen was then 85. I suspected that many street traders knew some friend or neighbour still forced to go out and walk long past retirement age because, like the Queen perhaps, their offspring were feckless and still financially dependent on them. I felt they would see her as a foreign monarch, but also a kindred spirit slogging away in old age like some neighbour to stop a ne'er-do-well family from falling apart. My article concerning her trip to Cork was so idiosyncratic that, unfortunately, I can't remember a single word of it. But what haunts me is my article from the day I reached Sligo on the eve of the Queen visiting Crow Park, where she and the GAA officials went on to find the appropriate words to say to each other and delivered them flawlessly. Her trip, it turned out, went better than mine. My poetry reading started so late that all I could find to eat afterwards in a nearby takeaway was an indistinguishable item so deep-fried and battered that only a DNA test would have revealed its origins. Back in the hotel, my deadline loomed. The couple in the adjoining room kept being amorous in an operatic fashion, and I was too exhausted to predict what the Queen and leading GAA officials might find in common to discuss beyond acknowledging the bloody Sunday massacre. By 3am, the sub-editors in Dublin grew restless but no thought occurred to me except that a hole in the paper was waiting to be filled. Finally, I found a truly tenuous link. Regional variations of hauling have existed for centuries and were sometimes banned for public disorder. 
Likewise, the English monarchy had existed for centuries, sometimes equally in a state of disorganisation, such as when George the Third went insane. But both entities were brilliantly reinvented by two strong-willed Victorians amid that Victorian mania for creating rules for everything. Michael Cusack drew up the rules for Gaelic games, while the shrewd German consort Prince Albert drew up the rules for the modern royal family, a reinvention completed in 1917, when its Germanic family name was changed to Windsor. The Queen and the GAA could find common room, I decided, in discussing the miracles of instant antiquity being bestowed on rebranded ideas. By 5am I had my thousand words and could click send, but a fault with the hotel's internet meant my email wouldn't send. My words were in Sligo. The hole in the newspaper was in Dublin, and it was going to print. My phone had also died. By 7am I had colonised the hotel's reception desk. The receptionists wisely fled, leaving me seated alone, dictating my column by phone to a frantic sub-editor. Elderly American tourists wanting to check out were baffled by why the man at reception kept shooing them away, shouting, I have a hole to fill in the paper. Finally, the sub-editor had enough to press print. The receptionists gingerly approached, the Americans keeping their distance. Mustering any remaining dignity, I paid my bill. Reaching the next town a few hours later, I saw the Herald already on sale. I ignored it. I had realised I wasn't cut out to be a royal correspondent. A Maypole and Fingless For Christy Dignam Older folks, you say, the Fingless Maypole helped us recover what the winter stole. Now I walk me old neighbourhood and see ribbons of colour in primroses under a tree. Late daffs beam at St. Patrick's holy well. Sunshine's coming, let's get under its spell. Early summer's poppy flames of flowers must delight old St. Canis's bowers. Marsh marigolds sway down by the talca and blossoms fall in a breezy polka. A warm wind makes ramblers stop. Be still as hawthorn petals shower all of Glen Hill. Now see the colours of that old May pole when fingless blooms relieve winter's toll. Every Thursday afternoon for several months I walked the quarter mile down the hill towards the harbour at Loch Shinney to collect my grandson at the school gate and walk him home. I remember how, on the first morning, he headed out for what he called big school. He walked, then half ran, then walked again, carrying his bright new bag of many colours, his pristine books, his pencils and pearer, and a Spider-Man lunchbox with a banana peanut butter sandwich and a biscuit. That morning he had hurried past the early autumn blackthorn with its bitter glossing sloes and the hawthorn with its bright red 
hawberry fruits. He had no time to look at these wonders. He was setting out on a great adventure. In the front gardens, I had noticed how the sun-gold rudbeckia flowers and the high flamingo cosmos were waving gently in the breeze. But he did not care about any of that. It was not long since I had sat by his cot at bedtime, trying to coax him into sleep, singing softly to him over and over Brahms's beautiful vegan lead, his lullaby. Lay thee down now and rest. Lullaby and God bless. But almost falling asleep myself as he lay there, wide-eyed, watching me. Now he was five years old, and I wanted to share the wonders of creation with him. Those afternoons I had drawn him to the sense of our beloved earth, the Budleia, sweet pea, the briar rose. Then at night I prayed he would be ever guarded by the angels, and at last he drifted, like a star, slowly into the darkness, while in the big world outside cats prowled and hunted, yowling on backyard corrugated shed roofs. I prayed, too, that there would be light, confidence in the sustaining presence of love, that he would leave his name written green on our illimitable earth. Thomas. As he and I meandered slowly together home and uphill from school, I pointed out some of the wonders of our world, and he would point out some to me. The profusion of startling orchids, the grandstand of high and silken grass heads, whispering together alongside our footpath, the lupin flowers, how they heaved themselves delightingly upward in many-coloured pagodas. We paused often, and he would, reluctantly, share some of the secrets of the classroom and his new-found friends. I learned, truly, as we touched upon the thin places of the world, how the spirit wanders, ghostly, bewildering always, halting where our thin partitioned earth brushes against the heavens and against the netherworld gate. The small and large portions of our world, where we stand silent and watchful a while, going round and round the marvels, listening. Thomas climbed up on a low wall towards the end of our afternoon togetherness, and I pushed and pulled and caught him, threatening a deadly fall over the cliff and onto the road, and he laughed as only a child can laugh. And once again, after the laughter, we paused to listen and wonder. There were the starlings on the electric wires above us, gossiping and chortling. There were the trees we loved, hugging their rough bark and talking to them. They made soft, whispering sounds, I told him. See how they stand, side by side, swaying in the winds as one. If you listen hard, you will hear them, I said, singing at night for you the lullaby. Guten Abend, gute Nacht, mit Englein bewacht. Good night, sweet child. Good night, the angels are watching over you. The roots of the trees, I told him, will link them to all their kin and friends across the fields, all entangled in a system of love and care. Like us, he said to me, and yes, Thomas, I laughed, just like us, and see how the lower branches tangle as if they were hugging one another, just like us. 
He picked up a small, fallen branch and held it over his head. Look, Grandad, he said, I am a tree, walking. We carried on quietly for a while, slowly, up the slope towards Thomas's home. For a moment I felt my age, knew I was fearful of illness, flu, covid, stroke, those unseen enemies. We are such stuff as the hurrying years consume. I know how important it is to let the children play, to open their imaginations to the beautiful places and living creatures of the world. I know how they live, the children, light as duck down on the palms of being, how they love the feathering of water swirling beneath a bridge, watching the twig on its fabulous journeying. And heading home from big school, Thomas, a boy in a boy's business, and a grandfather doing grandfatherly business. Brahms's lullaby ends, Schlaf nur selig und süß, Schau im Traum's Paradies. Sleep, child, safe and sweet. Watch for paradise in your dreams. Tianacher Gandhi. Home de here a golavudo, Hoshemar Galler Rishtigonum. Tigum, Gwilme a tort cad, Don Dera Dridim Nisgura, Gwilme a gmach de here, a fogal slan lamahail, Gwil Falu Sakra Hugum. Nivek Rian Dim le Fekol, Martan Kailu Lanunok Shah, a fogerton vosh. Nivek Mahomra in a frashach, Begshe Shimpli, Begme Mar Gandhi. Narag in yig akshayrod. Kaham ne leanta, e kur agar er gachrod, e fall regler roddi, e kav roddi amach, e goni a kur agar er mullower, and will find me bwintlishin, kaig me laidu. Found me rokerach ne tokel te balia eg iri onum, hame kreite e keshne fui hach nangur lady, and will gall the shaw. An hest is bonusi mar vachala eg ashu nu imachluus. Gandhi's influence. I'm always preparing for it. It's like a disease. I know that I am allowing the end draw nearer, that I am constantly pulling away, saying goodbye to my life, that I am creating a vacuum. There won't be a sign of me to be seen, this constant drawing in a declaration of death. My room won't be in a state. It will be simple. I will be like Gandhi, who left just six things behind him. I spend my days putting order on everything, getting rid of things, throwing things out, always organising my books. Does this have a function? I have to reduce. The unmerciful sound of domestic excavation rising within me. I am tormented by questions about the importance of things. Is there a need for this? The most fundamental question reverberating in my ear. <laughs> 